Well, do please make sure you've got John's gospel open in front of you. And we come this week to chapter 4, verse 27 to 42, page 889. If you've got one of the Black Church Bibles, if you don't, there's a big pile at the back of the room. Be a big help to see the text as we work through it together. John has just been telling us of the Samaritan woman who has tasted living water and need now never thirst again. And we continue the story then in John chapter 4, verse 27. Just then, just as Jesus discloses himself to her as the great I am, the bridegroom of God's people, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all I ever did. This couldn't be the Christ, could he? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who harvests is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and harvester may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another harvests. I sent you to harvest that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony, he told me all I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his words. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. Well, how are you enjoying this gospel so far? Because John the writer is having a lot of fun with it. He has written this book to tell us the truths that rejoice his heart. Because he hopes that these truths will bring joy to your hearts as well. He started in his prologue, didn't he, with a story of the love and life in the heart of heaven. And the word, the eternal son, sent down to earth to bring us into the warmth of his father's side. Soon we saw that eternal word made flesh, portrayed as the great long-promised bringer of joy, his first archetypical sign rescuing a wedding party and providing the wine. And then for the last two weeks, we've watched him get involved in the life of a woman whose story was achingly broken 
and sinful and sad. And yet he put a smile back on her face for the first time in many, many years. We discovered that this Jesus is the kind of person who loves people nobody else would love. And John is going to continue her story this morning, but in a way that does two things. First, her story will be a contrast that he uses to poke fun at his own story, his fellow disciples and their story. And secondly, he's going to use this story, her story, to teach us truths that are rich and beautiful and meant to rejoice our hearts. Superficially, this is the passage about world mission, isn't it? It's the one that we save for when the missionary's here to preach on home assignment or the evangelist is here to guilt us all into doing a better job. And yes, there's no question, it's got a lot to say about evangelism and the mission of the church, but it says those things in a way that are far, far more rich and more beautiful and encouraging than I at least had ever really appreciated swim into the deep ends, and what we find is that actually this is a passage reveling in the eternal heart of God the Trinity. It's the passage that answers the question, why was Jesus so deeply Jesus-like? What makes Jesus' heart beat the way it did? So if, like me, you think that the way Jesus' heart beat is the most beautiful thing you could ever give half an hour's attention to, then this morning we are in luck. John is having fun telling this story. He's peering into these glorious, eternal truths about the heart of the Trinity, but he does it in a wonderfully creative way by weaving together two stories that are both happening at once. First, we've got the story of an uncertain evangelist. Just a paragraph before when we met her, she seemed like the hard-hearted village scandal. But notice how her story is built like a frame around this unit. She leaves Jesus, verse 28, and she tells everyone she knows about the man who told her all she ever did. Come and see, she says. And in response, verse 30, they start to come. And then down to verse 39, we see them begin to arrive. We get a repetition of her testimony. He told me all I ever did. It's like a bracket around the whole thing, isn't it? Framing that paragraph in the middle, which tells us a second story taking place simultaneously. Story number one an uncertain evangelist is busy winning Samaria for Christ. Meanwhile, story number two, Jesus' actual disciples are busy contemplating their sandwiches. As if John is prompting us to ask, whose heart has been most aligned by this point with what we see in Jesus' heart? You see, she has something, and so far at least, they lack something. So let's start then with the bookends, the frame, and we'll work our way into the middle. What this uncertain evangelist has. 
the disciples come back and they're astonished to see Jesus and this woman talking together by themselves. And I'm pretty sure that those questions they don't quite dare to ask out loud are both aimed at Jesus, not at her. Why are you seeking a woman like this, Jesus? It's the question he asked them, if you remember, right back at the start of their discipleship. What are you seeking? It's a heart-probing question, isn't it? What's going on in there? But it's Jesus who is the great seeker in this book. He found her, not the other way around. So what are you seeking and what do you think you'll ever accomplish by talking to a woman like this? And both of those questions will be answered by the end of the passage. Now, why am I calling her the uncertain evangelist? Well, because she leads to tell the whole town about this wonderful thing that's just happened to her, a strange Jewish man who not only bothered with someone like me, but did so having seen right into the very depths of my heart. It's a wonderful truth, isn't it? Jesus sees us through and through, all of us. And that has convinced her that he is something special. But even now, I think, by verse 29, she still doesn't quite dare hope that he really is everything she longs for. She has been let down, hasn't she, this woman, so many times. Grammatically, that question in verse 29 is expecting the answer, no. It couldn't be that this one's the Christ, could it? That's what she's saying. She's very uncertain. She does not have it all together yet. Perhaps she doesn't even know if someone like her ought to say anything at all. I mean, who is going to listen to the woman they all laugh at and gossip about and despise. And yet something's happened, and it is too wonderful not to blurt it out. She might not be sure, but she has something, doesn't she? Notice the little detail in verse 28. She left that water jar behind after all that, left it sitting there back at the well. If there was any more obvious way that John could tell us her needs have been met, I am scratching my head to think of it. The number of po-faced commentaries that absolutely refuse to see any significance in that detail is hilarious. Sometimes Bible scholars just need a good tickle. You wonder if they came home to a wife who had lit candles all over the house and scattered rose petals up the stairs, if they'd still be sort of tutting over their spectacles and saying, oh, it means nothing. One mustn't go for wild conjecture. No, this whole story up till now has turned on her desperate thirst and her unmet needs. She has lugged that jar in the heat day after day to the same well. And Jesus said, unless you drink of me, you will be back here tomorrow doing the same thing. And now, despite all that effort, her priorities have radically changed. Someone so wonderful has come into her life that all thoughts of her physical thirst have gone out the window, at least for the moment. That's what she has now, isn't it? She has the bridegroom. She may not have her doctrine altogether, 
but she has him. And it's him that she wants them to come and see, which turns out to be the very thing their hearts are searching for too. Look down at what they ask Jesus in verse 40. Stay. Stay with us. Abide with me, Jesus. It's that great John's gospel word once again. And so Jesus stayed with them two days until, for now at least, like Mary Poppins, he has to tear himself away. But he has gone out of his way to spend this time with the most unlikely of people, the great unwashed of Samaria. And all she needed to do was bring them to him. So that by the end, they're saying, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. We have met him for ourselves. We've experienced him. They're not being unkind to her there. That was exactly what she wanted, wasn't it? Come and see him, she said. It's so beautifully subversive, this story. This muddled woman who doesn't even know what to say becomes the most fruitful evangelist in the whole book. Because just like John the Baptist, she is interested in nothing more than passing people on to Jesus. Eventually, all of us need to grow out of the person who introduces us to the gospel. And we need to meet the living Jesus for ourselves. That's all evangelism really is. Sometimes it's just saying to someone, come along to church, come and see. Come and see the one who saw right through me and loved me anyway. I don't have all the answers, but what you need is to hear from him. And it's the end of the story that shows us the genuineness of that, the great and the good of Jerusalem with all their temple and all their learning. They got to see miraculous sign after miraculous sign, John said. And yet Jesus, remember, was deeply skeptical of their response. The unwashed and the uneducated of Samaria don't see a thing except one woman whose heart has changed. Their faith is not based on the signs. It's based, verse 41, on hearing his words. And two days spent with Jesus is enough to convince them of what nobody else has realized. We know, we uneducated Samaritans, we know that this indeed is the savior of the world. The only one who can reach into the heart of the hardest human being and give them life. The thing that has been trailed for this whole section of the book. No one's beyond his reach. Spot the repeated ideas there. Many, many more the world. No one's beyond his reach. He's not just for the Jewish or the religious or the moral or the educated city types. And if he is willing to love people like us, then all we want is for him to stay. That is the giveaway sign, surely, that their conversion is real and it's deep. It's him they want. Not just the benefits, but the bridegroom of God's people. And he is the one thing she actually has to offer them. And so for all her muddle, this woman knew deep down that the one thing they need is the one thing she has. And the one thing that every last Christian in this room has. However awkward we are with words, however 
prickly our personality, however ashamed we are to show our face, we know Jesus, and all people need is to meet him. Which brings us back, verse 31, to the disciples and their sandwich woes, verses 31 to 38, what the unpromising apostles lack. The contrast is immediate, isn't it? She has forgotten all about her physical thirst. They come back banging on about lunch. When they left Jesus in verse 6, remember he had crumpled to the ground in a sweaty, exhausted heap by the well. And so they went off in verse 8 to buy food, fuel to keep the rabbi on his feet. They've held their noses at all the Samaritan shops and tried to avoid eye contact with the smelly Samaritans and search for the best Greggs the town has to offer. And when they present it triumphantly to Jesus, verse 32, he says, no, no, it is something else entirely that keeps me going. I have food you lot don't know about. It's an almost identical conversation to the one with the Samaritan woman last time, isn't it? Then it was a kind of water that she didn't understand. Now it's food. But do you notice the disciples respond in exactly the same way? How many times have we seen this pattern by now in this book? Jesus talked about raising up the temple of his body and the establishment Jews in Jerusalem understood him on a purely physical level. He talked about the new birth of his Holy Spirit and Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, understood him on a purely physical level. Jesus talked about the living water that quenches mankind's greatest need forever. And the Samaritan woman understood him at first on a purely physical level. Now Jesus talks about the food that sustains him and refreshes him and brings him joy. Something has changed in Jesus since they left him at the well, since he sought and saved that woman. Suddenly now he's excited and encouraged and he's full of urgent things to say to them. Something has happened in the last half hour that has put joy and energy into his heart. And the disciples understand it on a purely physical level. Someone must have brought him grub. They are in exactly the same boat, aren't they, as everyone else that we've met so far. If their hearts will ever meet with his, if these are the men Jesus will one day use to win the world, while they are going to need a work inside them that only he can give. Just like Nicodemus, just like the woman at the well. A surprising amount of this gospel is given over to the ministry of Jesus' apostles. How on earth will he take these fallible, spiritually blind men and build his church through them when right now they lack the very thing that makes his heart beat with joy? And so that is what this central paragraph is all about. Look up, he's going to tell them. Lift up your eyes and see three beautiful things. Look at the love willed in eternity. Look at the calendar written into your Bibles. 
and look at the joy waiting for you in the world. Now, verse 34 is the big one, one of the most profound Trinitarian treasures in this book. Grasp this and everything else in our thinking about ministry and evangelism falls into place. Look at the love willed in eternity. My food, says Jesus, the thing that fills me up and keeps me going is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. Notice the massive things that little statement is telling us. First, it is telling us something profound about the kind of person Jesus Christ is. Right now, he's thinking back over that one conversation with that one broken woman, and it is like food and drink to him. It delights him. Can you think of a friend whose heart is a bit like that? How genuine and good they must be to be around. Jesus is the kind of person who would come to a party and spend the whole night talking patiently with that one bloke nobody likes, the one we're avoiding because none of us can stand his company. And Jesus wouldn't do it out of duty. He would do it out of a genuine deep kindness because it is actually a joy to him to love and change the unloved. And if that doesn't both humble you and fill you with admiration for Jesus, then nothing will. But there is something more that verse 34 tells us, not just what Jesus is like, but who he is. Jesus can do his Father's will and accomplish the Father's work because his will and his work is the will and work of his Father. In fact, the work of the Father and the work of the Son are completely inseparable. The works of the Trinity are undivided and they flow from a far deeper reality in God's one being. You see, Jesus isn't the only one sent in John's gospel. We've seen that word come up a lot already. John the Baptist was sent. In verse 38, his disciples are sent. That's what it means to be an apostle. But Jesus is sent in this book in a unique, one-of-the-kind way. He who sent me is a phrase he's going to use to talk of his father again and again and again. And often, I think we read that phrase in a shallow sense, as if it referred simply to his earthly mission of rescuing a lost world. But there's a richer sense to discover too in this book, a kind of sending that stretches right back into eternity. The Son is eternally from the Father, eternally begotten, His will is eternally God's will. His joys are eternally God's joys. His works are eternally God's works. Jesus is so deeply Jesus-like because God the Father is Jesus-like. Like Father, like Son. And so everything that Jesus came in time to accomplish flows from a deeper eternal reality that is fundamental to his nature. 
What Jesus is telling us there in verse 34 is that his entire earthly mission flows from the eternal loving will of God the Trinity, the salvation of the world of every possible kind of unlikely and unlovable person is the plan of joy decreed in the heart of God the Trinity before time began. Now, why does Jesus tell them that? Surely the point is to show his disciples what kind of work he's called them to be involved in. How deeply glorious and wonderful and extraordinary it truly is. You see, there's a kind of double patterning happening in this passage. The ministry of the Son is patterned after the Father. Their hearts rejoice over the same things in the same way. But it's also true that the ministry of the church is patterned after the ministry of the Son. It's here even on a kind of macro level. What have we seen Jesus do over this chapter? Well, he's left successful, glamorous Jerusalem where he was so well acclaimed. He's left the countryside of Judea to head for Samaria. And as the chapter goes on, he's going to head to what might as well be the ends of the earth, to Gentile Galilee. How will his church one day take the gospel to the world? Well, we'll see the same story, won't we, in Acts chapter 1. They will carry it from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's as if we're just coloring in a pencil sketch. But Jesus has already foreshadowed the whole mission. The thing that makes Jesus' heart beat are the same things that ought to make our hearts run faster. Which is just what we saw, isn't it, in the Samaritan woman. She knows her bridegroom already. And yet he sent his disciples to harvest, verse 38, looking for the food that brings joy to his heart. And they came back from a village full of lost Samaritans with nothing but sandwiches. Look at the love willed in eternity and the way we think about evangelism will surely change forever. This is the mission that brings delight to the one at the heart of the universe. Then verse 35, he tells them, look at the calendar written in your Bible. Notice how he's moved from talking about food to talking about harvest. It's the same thing, isn't it? This is the kind of food he was talking about. Now, I don't know what the word harvest means to you. To me, it conjures up memories of a rather sad-looking display of produce in a dying parish church and some cringy harvest festival prayers. Because basically, we are so cut off from the ground our food comes from that we have no idea anymore. So let me tell you what harvest time meant as someone who grew up working on farms. Harvest was the time of year that everything else, everything had to go out the window. Harvest means trucks arriving at the farm gate from dawn until dusk. It means combiners working out in the field under lights until 2 a.m. in the morning. It means astronomic levels of cortisol and adrenaline and caffeine and nicotine pumping through the bloodstream of everyone involved 
because you have one week to get in everything you've worked for over an entire year. Tons and tons of beautiful, hard-won fruit. And if you miss it, all that effort will just rot on the vine. Now, in Jesus' day, all of it has to be done by hands with everyone you know and everybody you can possibly spare staying to help. So it's the busiest time of year, but it's also the most sociable, isn't it? You work hard, and yet it's filled with excitement and laughter and fun. For a year, you have poured blood and sweat and tears into the soil, and now at last, you get to see what's grown. And then when it's all over, it's time for the hoedown, time to feast and kick back and enjoy the reward. So you see then what Jesus is saying in verse 35. You lot say, yet four months and then comes the harvest. You say Rome wasn't built in a day. You say a watch pot never boils. You say patience is a virtue, my friends. But haven't you realized what's going on? Look up at the fields all around us, hundreds of Samaritans, the loved and the lost of my father, heading towards us right now. The fields are literally flowering with human beings under their noses, a whole crop of white Middle Eastern tunics pouring their way, looking like a ripe field of wheat. And so I am harvesting right now. The combines are out in the fields already getting paid, verse 36, which means the time for patience is gone. And if you're not careful, you will miss out on it all. They would have thought that a harvest for eternal life would be a not yet thing, an end times thing. Jesus is saying, look again at your Bibles. The Messiah is here now which means the end times have opened. They've begun. The harvest is an already thing. And then he gives them this beautiful picture, drawn, I think, from Amos chapter 9, of what it's like to live through the Messiah's great harvest. As if to say, look at the joy, the sheer joy waiting for you in the world. How does the Bible talk about the Messiah's kingdom? Well, it would be a world bursting with joyful, bountiful fruit. Think back to that first day in C.S. Lewis's Narnia, the earth so full of potential that whatever you plant in the ground just bursts into life. A bit of iron bar thrown, bounced off Aslan's head, lands in the soil, and immediately bursts up like a tree into a giant lamppost. That's what's happening at the end of verse 36. The normal gap between planting and harvesting has just vanished altogether. Amos puts it like this, talking about the Messiah's kingdom at the end of the ages. Behold, the days are coming when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed and the mountains will drip sweet wine and the hills will flow with it. You see the point? There is so much rich, beautiful fruit to enjoy in Jesus' kingdom that you have no time to wait. 
the reaper has got so much to gather in that the plowman's already treading on his toes, trying to get the next crop into the ground. There's just so much potential. And so verse 36, the sower and the reaper get to rejoice together. They cannot believe the sheer blessing that they're seeing with their own eyes and that they're allowed to be a part of. I wonder if that's how we think about our calling together as a church. We just cannot believe the sheer blessing out there to be had. You see, the Messiah's age is an age of joy and plenty. And here's the best thing, verse 38. It is all just sitting there right now, this ripe, juicy, beautiful fruit waiting to fall into our hands. Others have done the hard work. Others planted. All through the Old Testament age, people were faithfully planting the gospel, culminating in John the Baptist. It was a time of patient, patient sowing. Sow and wait, sow and wait. One day the Messiah will come and someone will see the fruit of all this. And now the alarm clock is ringing and we get to wake up and see what's grown. It is the gospel age at last, a time for hard work and sweat and cortisol through the roof, but a time for excitement and feasting with friends and sharing in the joy of heaven. And all the fruit of all that work is just sitting out there in the field waiting to fall into our hands like a ripe, juicy strawberry. Because all over this world, there are people whose hearts ache right now for what Jesus has to give. And he has called them to be his. And it is beautiful to see. Food for the soul, just to be part of it. Now think about how that completely upends the way we tend to talk and think about evangelism. My default, really, is to think of it as a guilty chore. It's something I know I ought to do, but I don't really want to do. Jesus thinks of it as waking up at harvest time and helping yourself to piles of beautiful, joyful, juicy fruit. He's invited us to a kingdom where the mountains drip with sweet wine and he's saying, you can tuck into that now. You didn't even have to do the hard work. I wonder if there is any excuse you can think of to duck out of the mission of the church that this passage doesn't somehow turn on its head. I say to myself, well, it's just not really who I am. Evangelism is not really something that excites me. Other people enjoy that. Jesus says loving people like this is the very joy of God the Trinity. It excites me because it excites my Father in heaven. Aren't you his child? I say to myself, well, these just aren't the right people. I don't know the right people. My friends aren't open to the gospel. It's too awkward with my family. Jesus says, I came to save the world, Samaritans the people nobody have time for. There is no kind of person who isn't my kind of person. I say to myself, well, it's just not the right time yet. 
Maybe when he's older. Maybe when he's ill and desperate. Maybe then he'll be more receptive. Maybe when the right conversation topic comes up, then I could risk it. Jesus says the harvest time is right now. There will never be a better time. There'll never be an easier time to have that conversation. When harvest comes, you pick the whole field or it goes to waste. And God has been planning this harvest from all eternity. And when he sent his son into the world, the gathering began. I say to myself, but Jesus, it is far too hard. He says, what a privilege you have. You get to enter now into 4,000 years of other people's labor and scoff the reward while angels rejoice in heaven. The field is white. Even here in declining post-Christian Scotland, there is food to be had just rotting in the field. I guess people look different. Our fields would be tartan for the harvest, wouldn't they? But the need and the ache is just as bad. And the Jesus we all know is just as good. Yes, it's hard. But not the way your nine to five is hard. This is work that is worth getting tired for. You get tired at harvest time. You just do. This is work that's worth getting up early for. Worth sacrificing family time and me time for. Worth for Jesus even missing your lunch break for. Because seeing the lost find love is heart food. Sharing the love his father loved was what kept Jesus going when he was tired, sick, and mocked, and ignored, and treated with contempt. So just shake the tree and see what falls into your hands. I say to myself, but I'm not equipped. It's not my gift. I haven't been trained properly. Jesus uses a woman who nobody would give the time of day to. A woman who wasn't even certain about the basics of the gospel. She has nothing together yet. But she knew him. And all she had to do was bring people to meet him. You don't need the right words. There's no formula. Just bring someone to church to meet with Jesus. Open up a Bible. Read the words right off the page with them. It might even be that most of the time, your job is to stay home and make the sandwiches for the men out in the field and fill up the coffee flasks and put the Bibles on the chairs. But there is nobody, when harvest time comes, who isn't up to their necks in the same work one way or another, all with the same focus and goal and intensity and joy. Right now, the men Jesus will use to win the world are missing out on the very thing that makes his heart beat. But it's time to think about the Christian life in a completely different way. Not a chore or a drudge or a duty, but reaping the joy of the ages. So look at the ripe rejoicing waiting for you in the world. Look at the dried up lives and the aching hearts waiting for a joy that only the gospel can bring. Look at the joy of loving people the way 
Jesus loves. And whatever you do, don't miss out on that. Well, let's bow our heads. Loving Heavenly Father, who in such grace sent your Son into the world to do your extraordinary will and accomplish your saving work, help our hearts, we pray, to sing for joy at the thought of being part of that. We're humble afresh that Jesus sees us through and through, and yet he's loved us. And so we pray, Father, for hearts that are the same. Forgive us for the ways we close ourselves off from those we don't like, don't understand, don't enjoy giving our time to. Forgive us for the ways that your will hasn't moved and excited us. We belong to the Savior of the world who delighted to give his all to people just like that. And so help us, we pray, to roll up our sleeves and find our joy in being like him. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.